So it's our last section on Christian maturity, the topic. There's a lot of background material you guys know. Most people that are here today have been for most of the sessions. And basically this is going to be sort of a review, sort of a run over, but I'm not going to run over everything, of course. But there's a few things I'd like to talk about that um, you should be familiar with. Uh, We're going to start off with, uh, early on here, a consideration of Psalm 51. And later on, we have another really good uh, poem uh, to discuss as well. I wanted to start with this verse. This is just kind of a theme verse for us today. Uh, Luke 22, 28 and 29. You are those who have stayed with me in trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom. We talked about temptations. We talked about working against temptations last time. We talked about our temptations being most um, commonly internal. Uh, we are subject to be influenced by things on the outside, but most of what draws us in the wrong direction is within ourselves. We talked about that last time. Jesus here is talking about um, those who have stayed with him in his trials. Our life is trials. Our life is dealing with temptations. And uh, again, Jesus here is talking about those who have stuck with him through trials. That's what we do, isn't it? We, um, uh, we strive to be with Jesus Christ, to respond as Jesus would have us respond uh, in our trials, our life of trials, and a lot of those trials are within ourselves. So um, one thing we noted last time was that um, I'm going to try to reposition to get out of the feedback if I can. Um, we talked about poetry in general over the last number of weeks, and one thing that we've noted is that a good poem needs to stand on its own. That means that if you take that poem, you put it anywhere, any country, any age, any year, you, so you ought to be able to read that and get something out of it, okay? You ought to be able to read it and understand, know what the author is talking about. You shouldn't be pinned to a particular age. Of course, the Bible's like that too. And uh, we're going to consider Psalm 51 today. Psalm 51 is particularly that way. It's a psalm that you can read, that uh, you can see applies, and you can understand it in all ages, and at all levels of spiritual maturity too. Um, I remember... Uh, years ago, when I first started reading the Bible seriously, I read Psalm 51. Didn't know a lot about the histories and those kinds of things, but I read Psalm 51 and I said, yeah, I get that. I understand that. Not even having very much knowledge or experience or whatnot. So 51 is like that. But the point here is, again, the Bible stands on its own. A good poem stands on its own. You know this also from other types of literature, Robinson Crusoe. We all know that story, okay? Uh, written in the uh, early 1700s, and yet still it's a story that engages us. It's a story that draws us in. There's a lot of Christian allegory in that story, if those of you who haven't read it. Uh, you know, we see these things on movies and TV and whatnot that's really an adulterated form of this book, which is a very Christian book. It's a book that we can relate to as Christians in all ages. But the point is, once again, Robinson Crusoe from the 1700s, and we still get the story. It still draws us in. And of course, you all know William Shakespeare, 
you all know and love, and you read him every day, right? Uh, but he does relate to our era. He does relate to us today. We still hear about him. We still study about him. Um, we still use a lot of what he has said as kind of catchwords and catchphrases. So, um, again, these things apply for all ages. So a poem by itself, parts of the Bible by themselves, can stand on their own. I'll give you another example. Robert Frost would never interpret one of his poems for anybody. Somebody would come to him and say, what does this mean? And he'd say, look, you need to read it for yourself. You need to figure this out. Because his poems, and you know that this is true, his poems apply for all ages. You should be able to read them and understand them and really get something out of them for all ages. Just another example of this uh, having a work of literature stand on its own. 1 Corinthians 10.11 speaks to this in a way. 1 Corinthians 10.11 says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Okay? Um, Paul is talking about things that happened in the Old Testament here. And he's saying that those things were written, okay, uh, down for our instruction at the time of Paul, after the death of Jesus Christ. He says further, uh, they're written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come, okay? We consider ourselves living in the end of the ages, don't we? And the ages is uh, between the time of Christ and the second coming of Christ. And Paul says, is saying here that um, these things that were written in the Old Testament apply throughout all the ages. He's actually making kind of a didactic statement to tell you that this applies to everybody. And we know this. We like to read our Bibles. We like the Old Testament. We know that it applies to us today. We understand it today. And we know that it helps us in our lives today. But Paul says, again, now these things happen to them as an example, providentially happened to them, but they were written down for our instruction, written at the time of the Old, at the, of the Old Testament um, for our instruction, and our is on whom the end of the ages has come. So, again, an example of these things and uh, how they apply to all ages. You know, we talk, uh, I was going to talk about per- perspicuity. Um, you guys probably know that word. It's a big word we like to throw around. Uh, but it's a word that says that what you say is clear. We say that the Bible is perspicuous. And, of course, we know that there are many parts of the Bible. You and I can pick them up and read them, get them, understand them, enjoy them. There's a lot of parts that we don't understand as well. But the Bible as a whole, as God's message to us, as God's revelation to us, okay, um, it's something that we can understand. God gives it to us that way. He gives it to us so it will be clear. And again, the Bible stands on its own. So I just want to mention, we talk about perspicuity. This uh, really applies in this situation that we can understand it in all ages. So let's look at Psalm 51. Um, I'm just going to read it through to start with. Then we'll say some things. We're not going to really tear this apart and get into the depths of it, but there's some points that I want to make about Psalm 51 with you. The first one I've already made, which is, This is a psalm, if you give it to somebody, particularly an early Christian, an early Christian can get something out of this, okay? It's a psalm that is 
very accessible to us. So uh, we know uh, part of the description at the beginning of the psalm here, uh, it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. This is the great sin that we know of, of David, okay? This psalm applies to that. This psalm of David is what he wrote at that time. But suppose you read this psalm, didn't really know much about that story. Uh, we know a lot about it today. It's preached a lot. We read a lot about it. Suppose you read this psalm and you didn't know that story. Well, you wouldn't really have to know that story in order to understand this psalm and in order to have God's message come to you. It helps. It gives us more information. It gives us more understanding. But you wouldn't need that. This is a psalm that really stands on its own in all ages. So Psalm 51 uh, it says, uh, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your, your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in, all, in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. Now, you know, our series here has been on maturity, and there's a lot of theology in this um, psalm. There's a lot of things that might be cryptic, might not be understandable to a lot of people. But this psalm really is one that you can mature on. As you read it, you come to understand it more, you understand your Bibles more, you come to... Um, uh, understand God more, and to mature in your faith. So create in me a clean heart, O God, the title of this poem, the title that's given to this psalm. It says a lot of things just in and of itself. And I'm only going to go over a few things here for you, but it'll give you an idea of why this type of a psalm is so easy for us to access in any age. Create in me a clean heart, O God. What's that talk about? It talks about the sovereignty of God, doesn't it? Here's a person, we know from the story of David, that he's in trouble, right? And somehow he knows to go to God with that trouble. A lot of people that don't know that. 
You have friends, I have friends, family. We have family members that don't know that. But here we have a person, even in the depths of his trouble, he knows that he can speak to God, okay? And in the title of this, this poem, Create in Me a Clean Heart, O God, he's asking for a lot, isn't he? What is he asking for? He's not asking for something physical. He's not asking for riches or anything like that. He's asking for something even bigger to be done, which is with his soul, isn't it? That's a big leap for somebody to understand that. It's a statement of somebody who is mature as we've been studied, studying. He knows where to go. He knows what he can talk with God about. Talking about the sovereignty of God over his heart. Um, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And I'll ask you the question again. How does he know to make these um, requests of God? Is this something that's just conjured up? Is this something that comes to him as a result of some spiritual experience? Holy Spirit works in him. But how does he know these things? Well, he knows these things because God has revealed them to him already, okay? Bible's been in, in, uh, in existence for a long time. The Old Testament, the stories of the Old Testament, the relating of the Old Testament, and the uh, synagogue has been there for a long time now. There's a lot of revelation that God has given to his people at this point. And so what does that give us? When we come to church, hear a sermon, we learn about God, what does that give us? It's God's revelation to us, it's his self-disclosure, as we've said, to us. He's telling us kind of intimate things about himself. And in this psalm, there's a lot of those intimate things that God has said. These are personal things that he says. And what does that do? It gives us the ability to talk back to God. You remember we said that prayer for us is our part of the conversation. And a lot of what we do in prayer is we talk back to God. We repeat back to him what he has said to us. We know what to ask of God because he has uh, educated us on that already. He's already started this conversation. So David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. That's a lot to ask, isn't it? A lot to ask to blot out transgressions. You've, um, you've impinged upon somebody else in your life, and you need to go and apologize. That's a big deal, isn't it? To ask somebody else to uh, grant you forgiveness for some uh, wrong that you've committed to them. And yet, here, this person knows that he can even ask God, okay, to blot out his transgressions. That's a big deal. This is an intimate conversation, isn't it? Somebody that knows something about God and speaks back to God in a way that God has said that he should speak back to him. It's a sign of maturity, isn't it? Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Again, this is advanced, I want to say it's advanced theology. How would you know to ask God for such a thing? To ask God uh, to cleanse you, to take your heart and change it, to make you into somebody that uh, can be in the presence of God. How would you know that? We've been talking about this intimate conversation. One of the things we, we spent some time on was the fact that this conversation goes back and forth. You know, one person reveals something intimate, 
uh, the other person talks back, and as this conversation goes back and forth, they become more and more intimate, and finally it becomes a love relationship. So how does he know? Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. How does he know to ask that? Well, God has revealed that to him. He's revealed it to all of his people. That even through things like the ceremonial law, there is a mechanism to come to God for forgiveness. There's a recognition of our sins, okay? But there's also a recognition that God will address that with us, that he will hear us, that he will have this relationship with us. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Again, we've been talking about maturity. Here, um, we have somebody, we have David that says, against you, you only have I sinned. That's advanced, isn't it? That's a mature person speaking. When you speak to your friends, your family members who are not Christian, do they know that kind of thing? They don't do that, do they? We know that we can go to God. Do we know that when we sin, when we do things that are wrong, that we're sinning against God? Remember, we've talked about this with regard to Jesus Christ. Our conversation with Jesus Christ is not just our words and our prayers, but it's also um, what we do. That's our speaking to Christ. What we do in our life is our speaking to Christ as well. And we, before we, we have um, referenced um, these two verses, Matthew 25, 40, um, which says, and the king will answer them, say, say, will answer them um, <clears throat> truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Okay? We're talking about actions between people. You know, if you help them, you were doing that in Christ. You were doing it to Christ. What you do with other people is part of your conversation with God. So as we walk day by day through our lives, this is what we're doing. We're conversing with God. We're saying things to God in what we do. Matthew 25, 45, uh, then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Again, what we do, don't do, what we choose to do, is part of our conversation with, with God. It, it is um, um, we making a statement to God about what we believe, about how our love is, about how we reveal God to other people. So, uh, verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Verse 6 again. Behold, you delight in truth. How does he know that? Again, God has spoken to him. And he's speaking back to God. He's saying, yes, I get that. I understand it. I accept that. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being in your heart, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Remember we talked about in this, this conversational model that we laid out a few, a few weeks ago. What God gives us is something that's intimate from his heart. Some people would call it a secret, a self-disclosure, okay? God tells you something very intimate about himself. And we also tell God things that are intimate about ourselves. Remember we've said 
God knows this. He knows what's in our heart. He knows everything. But to make the statement back to him is a, an action of intimacy, to actually go and tell them. You could say, well, I harmed that person, but they know that I'm sorry. Well, no. It takes a lot more, a lot more energy. It takes a lot for you to go to that person and say, look, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry I did that. That's a sign of intimate interaction. Or you can walk away and say, well, they get it. I don't have to say anything. You can see here, um, we're talking about secrets of the heart. We're talking about things that God has told us and that we speak back to God. And even though God knows what's in our hearts, um, we speak it back to him because that's a sign of our intimacy with him. That's a lot of what our prayers are. Uh, verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Again, an affirmation of what God has promised us. Okay, God has promised us. We know our depravity. We know our fallenness. We know our sin. We know our trouble. David knows it in particular here. Okay, We know that story of David. But even without that story of David, we know what our hearts are like. And God has promised us that he will cleanse that for us. We have no other hope, do we? God could leave us as we are, okay? He can leave us to ourselves, which would be a horrible thing. But we know God has promised, even back, way back in the beginning of Genesis. Remember Genesis 3, where God promises that there will be a redeemer that comes for us. He, he tells us that we will be cleansed. So again, the believer, the mature believer, knows this about God and speaks it back to God. Verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Let me hear joy and gladness. Does he have any reason to ask that of God? And yes, throughout the entire uh, Old Testament, prior to the writing of this psalm, God has promised us redemption and joy. He's also told us that in this verse, what? Things are going to happen. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. God has given us providence. He's given us the tough times in our lives, okay? We have all felt broken from time to time, and yet God knows that, yet we know that God uh, promises, promises us redemption. And again, this is a mature view. We have read these things so many times ourselves, okay, that, yeah, we get it. But do you realize how you got this? You realize that this is your conversation with God and that it is a mature conversation. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. What a question to ask of God, right? Turn away. Hide your face from all my sins, okay? Again, David knows because of his relationship with God because of what God has revealed to him, that he can ask that question. He can make that request. And God has told us that he will. Blot out all my iniquities. Hebrews 8.12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities. Okay? For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Pretty clear, isn't it? Okay? Remember, when we're early Christians, your friends, your people that don't have the assurance of Christ, don't know that. And here as we talk about maturity, this is a big thing to know. For God will be merciful toward our iniquities, and he will remember our sins no more. It's a big deal. Very intimate, isn't it? 
People who are not Christians don't know that intimate, that secret that God has revealed to us. Jeremiah 31, 34, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Again, Old Testament, Jeremiah. Uh, Pastor Ben's been giving us this to us step by step. Um, I will remember their sin no more. What a promise, right? People are in trouble in their lives. Things fall apart. They don't know um, the love of God. They don't know what God has revealed in terms of recovering us. And here's, these are the secrets that God tells us. And the secret conversation, again, is that conversation that brings us together with him. He tells us things about him. God tells us things about himself that a lot of people don't know. We take those to heart. We speak them back to him again. And we have this conversation that draws us closer together. Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 11, Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. What a, what a request to make from God, right? How can we make such a request to a, a holy and powerful God? Well, God has told us that we can. And we've, we've had some citations to show that. Verse 12, Restore, restore me to the joy of of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. As a way of rehearsing something else that we've talked about before, we've talked about the difference between the person who is um, not living a godly life, who's perhaps not regenerate. And what does that person do? The person closes himself in. He's not giving Christ to anybody else. This is Augustinian theology. Um, God opens our hearts. He makes us interact with each other. Okay, uh, And that's why in verse 13, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. You remember the object lesson that I had. I should have brought my object lesson again today. The dark sphere where we live without Christ where light has trouble getting in, it gets in. Uh, but we tend to take things and hold them within ourselves, not give them out to anybody else. We don't consider the rest of the world the way this psalm has been talking about. And yet, remember, we have the clear sphere on the other side. The light of Christ comes in, and the light of Christ goes through us. It's given to the rest of the world. Okay, Two different ways of approaching the world that, um, that uh, show a mature relationship with God. And again, we're talking about maturity. Verse 13, then I will teach transgressions, I'm sorry, your transgressors, your ways, and sinners will return to you. Uh, 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. A repetition of what, what he's talked about before. Again, how can we be so bold as to ask for delivery from blood guiltiness? You know, even delivery from being a murder, of harming somebody in a big way. How can we go to God with that question? God has revealed that to us. We are mature in our relationship with him. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. This is a verbal relationship. We have to know that. 
God gives us his word. It's words. It's a verbal relationship. We talk back and forth with God. Verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not, please, you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is, there's a sequence here. If we go on to 18, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Okay? If we go from 16 through 19, for you will not delight in sacrifice, okay? Or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Why not? God has prescribed that in, the, in his ceremonial law, hasn't it? This is what Old Testament uh, believers did. These were the ceremonial law sacrifices. But then David goes on to say, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart of God. You will not despise. It means what? It means that the sacrifices aren't worth a thing unless your heart has been changed unless you have that intimate relationship with God. doesn't mean a thing. But we also know, as we said before, that what we do is part of our conversation with God. Um, if you're not in Christ, if you're not worshiping God the way you should be, then what you do is not acceptable to God. Uh, on the other hand, verses 18 and 19, do good to Zion in your own good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your, on your altar. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. It's God who does this work in our hearts that brings us to himself. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Build up our faith, okay? And it's at that point where we have that intimate relationship with God, where we where he has revealed himself to, to us, and we speak back to him in the faithfulness that he has given us, that we are able to bring praises and offerings to him that are effective and meaningful to him. So this is a, a psalm. You know, if we consider the idea of maturity, it's a psalm that speaks a lot about what a mature relationship with, with God is like. And I've just given you a little bit of a rundown about that. There's a bunch of verses in your handout, beginning with Ephesians 6.13. I'm not going to go through those. That has to do with um, our discussion of temptation. Um, I'd like to, at this point, move on to the uh, sermon that is uh, in your, no, I'm sorry, to the poem that's in your handout. It says, a, a prayer in old age. It's by Siegfried Sassoon, Okay. Siegfried Sassoon was a poet, a poet from the early 1900s. I think he lived until, he lived until 1967, so 1886 to uh, 1967. Kind of an interesting guy. Uh, he was from both Christian and Jewish background, okay? Um, he fought in World War I, okay? He was apparently uh, a very brave man. The story is he was brave to the point of recklessness, but he got out there and he got the job done. A story about him, World War II, um, he was so bold in his fighting, he was given two men who were to give cover fire for him, shooting, uh, while they were supposed to, he was supposed to go and take a trench. 
And he managed, you know, this was trench warfare in World War I. Um, Siegfried Sassoon uh, managed to, glow, to go and clear a whole trench, a long trench of Germans by himself with cover fire, okay? So he was bold, okay, to the point of recklessness. Um, what did he do thereafter? Well, he sat in the trench, pulled out his book of poetry, and read, waiting for the rest of the troops to catch up. What he was supposed to do, is, of course, is get the, the message back to his commander that, yes, this was all taken care of, we're all set here. But he didn't do that. He was supposed to get the DSO, Distinguished Service Medal of some kind in England, but he didn't get it for that reason, because he sat down and read poetry after he cleared the, the trenches of uh, very many Germans. So, shall I say, a man after my own heart, right? He knew what to do in a pinch. But at any rate, Siegfried Sassoon, very nice poem. I think you should enjoy this poem. Again, this is a poem that speaks about the maturity of faith, okay? So it's called A Prayer in Old Age. Um, Bring no expectance of a heaven unearned, no hunger for beauty to be, until the lesson of my life is learned that what thou, through what thou did for me. Bring no assurance of redeemed rest, no intimation of awarded grace, only contrition cleavingly confessed to thy forgiving face. I ask one world of everlasting loss and all I am, that world, that other world to win, my nothingness must kneel below thy cross, there let new life begin. This is a statement by a mature Christian. We're going to go through this, and we're going to see what he has to say. Prayer in old age. Old age is maturity, right? Some of us here know that. Old age is maturity. Um, He's speaking about somebody who has had a life, okay, who has had a lot of experiences. He himself had a lot, as as I partly explained to you. So this is a, a prayer in old age, speaking to God, in old age. And in that first verse, he says, Bring no expectance of heaven unearned. That's what we expect, isn't it? God promises that. We haven't earned our heaven, okay? Uh, we're debtors to mercy alone, right? We haven't earned it. He says, Bring no expectance of a heaven unearned, no hunger for beatitude to be. God has promised us a good afterlife, hasn't he? a good life in Christ for all eternity. And yet the poet says, don't bring that to me. Don't bring that to me. He's basically saying, don't bring it to me now. He says, bring no expectance of a heaven unearned, no hunger for beatitude to be, until the lesson of my life is learned through what thou didst for me. You know, too often, we're thinking constantly about our own redemption, aren't we? We talk about forgiveness of sins, what Jesus Christ has done for us, okay? A lot of our Christian dialogue is based on that. And yet here Siegfried Sassoon is saying, let's put that aside until my life, till my faith has matured to the extent that I understand my life in terms of what you did on the cross, okay? At what point are you and I going to understand what Christ on the cross has done for our lives in particular. When are we going to know that? It's different for each one of us, okay? How that affects our lives is different for each one of us. 
And yet Siegfried here wants us to put aside these great promises that God has given us. Bring no expectance of a heaven unearned, no hunger for beatitude to be. Let's put those things aside. Let's put those great things aside until I really understand what your work on on the cross has done for me. Until the lesson of my life, he says. The lesson of my life. The big meaning, the big main understanding of my life has come to me through what your work on the cross was. Until the lesson of my life is learned through what thou didst uh, for me. We had talked about, um, just as an aside, you know, George Herbert, we, we talked about Colossians 3.3. In summary, uh, his words, uh, my life is hid in him that is my treasure, okay? My life is hid in him that is my treasure, okay? This is what Sassoon is talking about. Is my entire life hidden or, or, or uh, controlled or seen as a result of my understanding of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. This is the lesson of his life. Um, let's go to the, to the second verse then. If I can get to it in my notes. Okay, second verse. Bring no assurance of redeemed rest, no intimation of awarded grace, only contrition cleavingly confessed to thy forgiving face. So again, he's saying, bring no no assurance of redeemed rest, of redemption, of us resting in Jesus Christ, of that eternal Sabbath that we have. We have a Sabbath day today that gives us an idea about that. But he says, bring no assurance of redeemed rest. Let's put that aside. Those great things that you and I think about all the time. Put that aside. Don't bring any intimation of awarded grace. You and I cling to that, don't we? We look for the grace. We look for the good things that God gives to us. But here, this person speaking wants to put all that aside until he can truly glorify Christ in what Christ has done. He says, only contrition cleavingly confessed to thy forgiving face. Again, knowing our fallen estate, okay? Bring no assurance. Bring no intimation of awarded grace. Just bring to me now contrition, cleavingly confessed. Contrition, confession that happens as you cleave to Christ, as you cling to Christ in, uh, in your life. Only contrition, cleavingly confessed to thy forgiving face. And looking at Christ and looking at the way um, he has been revealed to us. You know, we, um, one of the things that he's suggesting here is that in the first uh, couple of lines of this verse is that sometimes um, our view of Christ is actually obscured a bit. You remember, and I've got the verse here somewhere. Um, I'll try to find it. Um, we talk about seeing through a, um, a, a, um, a glass darkly, right, in our life now. And um, here we go. 1 Corinthians 13, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face, okay? 
Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. This poet is suggesting that some of these things that are blessings of God, because we concentrate on them so much, actually obscure our view of Christ. Bring no assurance of redeemed rest. We love that assurance, don't we? We think about it a lot. Redemption, redemption for our sins, the work of Jesus Christ. Um, bring no intimation of awarded grace. Sometimes our concentration on these things really obscures our view of Christ to some extent. We're seeing through that mirror dimly at that point. He says, bring only contrition. He's praying that God would give him only contrition. Okay? Only contrition cleavingly confessed uh, to thy forgiving face. That confession directly to the face of Jesus Christ. You know, now we see through a, a glass darkly, then uh, face to face. Um, cleavingly confessed. We know our fallenness. We know that we have to cling to Christ because of that. And it's only in that, he says, that we'll see a real picture of Jesus Christ. Too often, our concentration on other things will um, obscure uh, a true a picture of Jesus Christ. And perhaps, perhaps that is what that obscuration is about. Perhaps that is what is darkening that mirror, darkening or not letting us see a full vision of Jesus Christ. So then the last verse, I ask one world of everlasting loss in all I am. We say this quite a bit, don't we? We need to put ourselves away. That's what this is saying. I ask one world of everlasting loss in all I am. I want my whole world to be an acknowledgement of how little I am. World of everlasting loss in all I am. I want to lose myself. And the purpose of that, he says, that other world to win. Until I lose myself, until I lose the importance that I put on myself, then I can't win that other world. That, that other world won't be awarded to me. And again, he's been saying that all of this is accomplished through Jesus Christ. It says that other world to win, that world is won by what? By the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, by the work that Jesus Christ has done. I ask one world of everlasting loss in all I am. Do we say that? We do sometimes. I ask one world of everlasting loss in all I am. I want to be totally lost to myself in order to win that other world, and that world is being in the presence of Christ. My nothingness must kneel below thy cross. There let new life begin. He's saying new life doesn't begin until you've totally lost yourself, until you've totally lost the importance of, uh, that you place upon yourself. So again, I ask one world of everlasting loss in all I am, that other world to win. My nothingness must kneel below thy cross. There let new life begin. I need to be nothing before I can kneel really truly, faithfully before the cross and have that real new life begin with me, that new creation happen. 1 Corinthians 2, 2 through 5, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We know that one. That's a very common verse for us to use. 
Paul is saying the same thing there in 1 Corinthians 2. I, I decided to know nothing. Myself would be nothing uh, except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Galatians 6.14, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the Lord has been crucified to me and I to the world. Again, saying the same thing. We lose ourselves uh, and the only important things. And sometimes is Jesus Christ and him crucified. And sometimes our view of ourselves and our redemption obscures that. Philippians 3.3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Same thing again, isn't it? We, we go down to nothingness in order to be in Christ. Philippians 3, 7, and 8, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Same thing. Sassoon puts it poetically. He twists your mind with it a little bit. So perhaps our purpose is to come to know or understand these things in the Bible a bit better. It helps us to think through these things. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Nothingness, right? Behold, the new has come. Galatians 6.14-18, through 18, But far be it to me from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. For now, uh, from, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. So, again, we go to nothingness in order to um, exalt Jesus Christ in order to really live in him, to have that true relationship with him, uh, we need to go to nothingness. And that's what Sassoon um, expresses in this, in this poem. Um, I just wanted to run through it again, if I can find it. Because um, it is a beautiful poem. One thing you remember about poems is that they're meant to be listened to. There's a particular music about them. So a prayer in old age, a prayer in maturity. Bring no expectance of a heaven unearned, no hunger for beatitude to be, until the lesson of my life, the lesson of my life, is learned through what thou didst for me, for what Christ did for him. Bring no assurance of redeemed rest, no intimation of awarded grace, only contrition, Cleavingly confess to thy forgiving face. Contrition, as we cling to Christ, our confession, our knowledge of our sinfulness and depravity. And then finally, I ask one world of everlasting loss and all I am, that other world to win. My nothingness must kneel below thy cross, there let new life begin. It says a lot, doesn't it? That's a mature view, mature view of a Christian. We're not looking just for the benefits. We don't want to just read and say, yes, God's giving these things to me. 
but it's a leaving of ourselves behind. It's a desire to have, to understand our life in Jesus Christ and uh, to live in that way as well. So I'm one minute short, first time I ever finished early. You guys can congratulate me for that. And uh, thanks very much for listening all this time. I hope you learned a lot, and I hope you have some things to carry on to other studies that you'll be doing. So um, why don't we, why don't we uh, close in prayer? Lord, we thank you for this.